Well, you can go ahead and turn or uh, on your phones or whatever to uh, Ephesians. And this morning we're going to dive into chapter 2. Um, but before then, I'm going to give a little bit of a lengthy introduction that I think will make sense once we get to the chapter. The reality is, is that man does everything that he can do to persuade himself that he's really not that bad. We live in a society that teaches, you do you. You can have your truth, I can have my truth, and we're okay. Of course, when those supposed truths collide, as they often do, we have a problem in which society doesn't really know how to deal with. But the heart of this sort of thing is really to convince ourselves that we just really aren't that bad. Deep down, we're good people. Sure, we have issues and troubles and even make some poor decisions, but deep down, we're okay. And this is the type of thinking that our world has. In fact, almost every discipline in our world, in our society, teaches this in an attempt to escape the view that man is evil. To escape the view that man is dead inside, because in reality, if they acknowledge that man is evil, then he is in need of something outside of himself, and the world just simply can't have that. Well, science attempts to avoid the question of evil by evolution. So basically, we're told that the key to man's problem is very simply that he hasn't finished evolving yet. I mean, after all, it's only been millions of years, supposedly, and we came from primordial ooze, and so you can't expect perfection in just a short few millions of years. No, cut man a break. Cut him some slack. Science tells us that we just simply need more time to evolve into better versions of ourselves. Modern-day psychology ignores the problem of sin altogether. No one is really bad. We are just merely the sum total of how well neurons and chemicals in the brain are working, or perhaps it's just the environment that isn't good enough. If man's a murderer, well, it's not really his fault. It's just that his environment wasn't good enough. Or perhaps he had a bad childhood, but he's not really a bad person. It's not really his fault. Or for the rapist, psychology basically says that he too is not really all that bad. Surely he isn't to blame. Maybe it's a chemical imbalance. He's not responsible for his own actions or her own actions, or maybe they misinterpreted their childhood. Whatever it is, the solution has to be based on something other than the fact that he's a sinner, because psychology denies the truth of sin, because it denies the existence of God. Listen to the way one training course on basic psychology puts it. It says, Topics and questions in psychology can be looked at in a number of different ways. Each perspective helps contribute to a new level of understanding to a topic. And mind you, by topic, they mean an issue, a problem, but they won't even say that. Continues on to say some of the major perspectives in psychology include, and these are the things you, were, you would get if you took a basic psychology class. Number one is a biological perspective. In other words, the root of the problem is not sin, but something biological. The rapist rapes not because he's sinful, not because he's dead, not because he's evil, but perhaps just because of a biological fault. Well, the second perspective is a cognitive perspective, and so the murderer isn't really at fault. He just simply has a cognitive issue, and so he can't really be held responsible a third one is behavioral perspective. Perhaps the alcoholic just needs to make some behavioral modifications. It isn't that anything's really wrong with him. He's a great guy. He just made a few bad choices, and now he's stuck in a bad behavioral pattern. A fourth one is evolutionary perspective. Well, we have spoken about this already. It's the premise that man just basically needs more time and will get better, will evolve. The last of the ones mentioned here is a humanistic perspective. Well, humanism says that the chief end of life is for man to be happy. 
And if that's true, then whatever means can be used to make man happy is therefore acceptable. Well, notice what they left out. Sin. They left out sin. But this course in psychology goes on to say, no single perspective is right. Wasn't that interesting? Each contributes to how we understand a topic and allows researchers to analyze the myriad of influences that contribute to certain actions. Then they can come up with a multifaceted solution to combat problematic actions. I'd suggest that rape is more than a problematic action, that drunkenness is more than a problematic action, that a shooter is more than a problematic action. But they go on to say that they want to combat problematic actions and encourage better outcomes and healthier behaviors. But it's interesting, you see, they don't even believe their own perspectives are right, and they say that. It's guesswork, really. It's not science. It's based solely on the premise that man is good and thus can't truly be responsible for any wrongdoing. There's no absolute truth. I mean, this is why there are well over 450 different counseling methodologies in the secular world, and every single one of them is found on the same premise. And the premise is very simply this there is no God. That's the premise of secular psychology, and that man is basically good. Well, beyond that, this core makes it clear that the aim isn't even to confront the root issue. We heard that, right? It's to combat problematic actions. In other words, they don't care that you have deadly cancer, so as long as they can teach you to ignore it. Their aim is to, quote, encourage better outcomes. So maybe they can convince a guy to stop beating his wife just a little less. Or maybe he'll just verbally abuse her, and so that's a little better than physical abuse. But their goal isn't to deal with the root cause because, well, quite frankly, the world doesn't have any idea what the root cause is. It's because they have a wrong view of mankind. They're only, as they state, trying to come up with healthier behaviors. And then, of course, there's no objective standard. How can you have an objective standard when you see there's more than 450 different methodologies in the same field? How can there be an objective standard? And so you could go to 450 different secular counselors and walk away with 450 very different views of man in our problems. Well, you can put a grizzly bear in a cage. You can limit his contact with humans, and while it may force a more desirable outcome, it still doesn't change the nature of the bear. When he gets out, he'll still rip you to pieces. And so neither can you change the nature of man without a power greater than what man has to offer. Well, I found this particular course very interesting. Let me read a little bit more from it. When speaking of bullying, now remember, this is from a psychology class, they make this statement. Imagine, for example, that psychologists are trying to understand the different factors that contribute to bullying. One researcher might take a biological perspective and look at the roles of genetics in the brain. So in other words, he's just beating up your child because he has bad genetics. Another might take behavioral perspective and look at how bullying behaviors are reinforced by the environment. And so his problem isn't sinful in nature, it's just that he's in the wrong environment. It's not really his fault. Another might take a social perspective, they say, and analyze the impact of group pressure. And so you see, it's not really his fault, it's the group's fault. You want to blame anything and everything but the person. And so their conclusion is that, well, the bully himself or herself isn't really all that bad. It's someone else's or something else's fault. Well, 
We have a recent example of this just in the past week, this kind of thinking, when a reporter asked our current White House press secretary a question. Let me tell you what he asked. He said, and I quote, So when a huge group of criminals organize themselves and they want to go loot a store, a CVS, a Nordstrom, a Home Depot, until the shelves are clean, do you think that's because of the pandemic? Well, that was his question. It's a good question. What was her response? This is the White House press secretary on national TV. I think a root cause in a lot of communities is the pandemic, end quote. It's something else. It's not that they're evil, not that they're sinful, not that they have a problem to solve. It's something else. Our society rejects the notion that evil is in this world due to sin. And we see it all around us, even in government and politics, or maybe nowadays especially in government and politics. That's a fundamental denial of Sin, we're told, in fact, that it isn't necessarily people that are racist, but systems are racist. That's a bit weird, isn't it? You're not racist, it's your chair. And because we have so many chairs in here and they're set up the way they are, if you sit in them, you must be racist. It's a bit ridiculous, but it's a fundamental denial of sin. We're told that if you are racist, that it's due to the amount of melanin in your skin or lack thereof. If you're one color, you're inherently racist. If you're a different color, it's impossible for you to be racist, and so there's no sin of the individual. But all these terrible, sinful things are basically external factors over which you and I essentially have no control over, except that we can attempt to modify behavior. Now, if you're sitting here thinking... What I imagine you must be, and that's that there are some apparent contradictions in some of these views, you'd be absolutely correct. Because we have a legal system that doesn't punish systems and inanimate objects. It still punishes people for the deeds they do individually, at least when the law works as it should. You can murder someone, and society might say, well, it wasn't really his fault. He had a terrible upbringing. His environment was really bad they can say that all they want but he'll go to court and the court will decide the fate of an individual not an environment no matter how hard man tries he can't escape the reality of sin and evil he can deny it he can try to ignore it he can come up with entire theories to explain it away but in the end the contradictions and logical fallacies will appear because you cannot change god's truth Unfortunately, this kind of denial of man's greatest problem, which is the problem of sin, isn't only in the secular world. It's also infected the church. But this is nothing new. In the 5th century, a man named Pelagius came along. We derive the heresy Pelagianism from him. He essentially taught that man was basically good and could, by his own willpower, be righteous. He believed that the answer was basically found inside of man and not outside of man. Of course, the implication of this is that man doesn't really need God. God basically made men neutral, he would teach, free to choose. And of course, this is a heresy because it denies the doctrine of original sin and it denies the need for salvation by grace alone. There have been a lot of different versions of that same thing over and over and over. We've heard the phrase, there's nothing new under the sun. That's true. It just comes in different forms and under different names, but they all attempt to minimize or dismiss sin or elevate man over God somehow. A very recent popular Christian voice made this statement, in fact, just this past week. They said, and I quote, Listen very carefully. We don't need to be saved from our evil selves, but from the belief that we are evil. Did you get that? We don't need to be saved from our evil selves, but from the belief 
that we are evil. Well, they went on to say, salvation is awakening and remembrance that we are good, born in God's image. So there's no sin problem. There's no sin problem. In other words, what they're saying is that you don't really need God because you're evil. You don't need to be saved from your sin. You're good enough. You just need to be told by God how great you are. Salvation isn't from sin. It's just simply from thinking you aren't good enough. And so this kind of nonsense is in the church as well. It's no wonder that we struggle to understand God's great power or his love because we don't understand sin. Many Christians don't really <clears throat> believe we're that sinful. We just read one who apparently doesn't believe we're sinful at all. Or if they do believe we're sinful, they don't truly believe that sin is all that bad. After all, if you didn't kill someone, you can still be a good person. Well, he doesn't hate people, that guy that I know, and so he must not be that bad. There are scores of Christians like the one I quoted just a moment ago who believe we don't need to be saved from our evil selves. Joel Osteen would be a good example of that sort of heresy. Now, I've given this long introduction and maybe you're still wondering, I'm not sure what all this has to do with Ephesians. Well, if you want to put your eyes down on the first part of chapter 2, I think you'll quickly see how it's relevant. I want to read the first 10 verses just so there's a fuller context this morning, but we're really going to just spend the morning on the first three if I get through them. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not that of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in, Jesus, in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. He says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them too, among them we too all formerly lived. How did we live? We lived in the lust of our flesh, he says. We lived in indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind. And then he says we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest children of wrath. Well, that's contrary to everything we mentioned at the beginning, which is the world's view, right? The problem is a sin problem. It's not your environment. It's not that other people influenced you. The problem is a sin problem. But we're going to come to that shortly. I want to back up just a little bit into chapter 1 because it's relevant. You see, it's really imperative that we rightly understand the true state of man. If we're going to understand that which Paul has just prayed for, you know, if you'll remember in verse 19, he prayed those three different things for us. And we should also remember that there's no chapters and verses right here. And so chapter 2 is just a continuation of what Paul's been talking about in 
chapter 1. Well, the central theme of the book of Ephesians can really be found in chapter 1 and in verse 10. With a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of all times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on earth. That's really the central theme. This is what the apostle means to communicate to us generally overall. And of course, he continues in the next few passages in chapter 1 to show us how God is doing that. And then into chapter 2, Paul started chapter 1 with God, and all throughout he's pointed to the work of God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And everything that is happening in this world is concerned not with what man is doing, but with what God is doing. Our predestination, our redemption, our adoption, our inheritance, and so forth. All the work of God and all due to his mercy and love towards us who are in Christ Jesus. Everything is summed up in Christ at the end of time. So everything that we have is through Christ. There's no salvation apart from Jesus Christ. And every blessing that comes through him and every blessing we have comes through him. And it comes by him and ultimately for him and the glory of God. It's interesting in the first chapter, the apostle refers to Jesus 15 times in 23 verses. 15 times in 23 verses. And so Paul's told us of how great our salvation is. He's told us that we have an inheritance, but then he goes on to tell the Ephesians that there are things that they desperately need to understand. These are the things that we looked at that he prayed for the Ephesian church and for us. He prayed that we would understand the hope of his calling. You remember that. He prayed that we would understand the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And then he prayed that we would come to understand the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe. And the apostle insists that they must know these things because knowing and understanding these things will affect your walk with Christ in this world. And so after we read chapter 1, we're meant to come to understand that all of salvation and all of its benefits are born of the power of God. And then we come to chapter 2, where Paul continues... As he changes course a little bit and he tells us of the predicament of man before he encounters the power of God. What is it that man is saved from? Just what is the power of God directed towards? I mean, is the power of God directed towards us as the quote I read earlier, only to convince us that really we're good? And that we just need saving, not from sin, but just from not believing we're so amazing? Or is there something else that demands the power of God? Well, we've already read the passage, and so certainly we know that it's the latter and not the former. God's power is directed towards us in salvation to tell us, not to tell us that we're just not good enough, that we need some self-help. No, The apostle says that we were dead, dead before Christ. And that's dead not as in bad thinking, not dead as in just not knowing how great we are, not dead as in that we have the answers already deep inside of us, but actually dead. The word there used for dead means dead, like a cadaver. There's no spiritual life. It doesn't respond to any external stimulus. Stimulus, we are dead. And so the Apostle Paul wants us to know what the true state of man is without Christ. I mean, he wants us to realize our condition before Christ so that we can realize the surpassing greatness of the power of God. In reality, the Apostle Paul knows that if we don't fully grasp our sin and our deadness, that we can't hope to understand why the power of God is really necessary. Why is it essential? Without understanding the severity of sin, we can't understand the greatness of God's power directed towards us who believe. This is who... 
we are before Christ. This section of Ephesians chapter 2. It's who we are before Christ. And for those who are without Christ, this is who they are still. They're not just basically good people. They're dead people in their trespasses and sins. And that is the problem that demands a solution. The Apostle Paul wants us to understand this so that we understand God's power. I'd say that there's no shortage of problems that Christians are faced with very simply because they have an improper view of sin. If we have a low view of the seriousness of sin, guess what? It's natural that we'll have a low view of our salvation. Because if you were saved from very little, then the power didn't have to be very great. And so a low view of sin causes a low view of the power of God. But the apostle has just prayed. Remember, he's just prayed that we would come to understand not just the little power of God, but listen to the language again, the surpassing greatness of the power of God. And so if we don't really believe that we were wicked, then we can't really believe that God has saved us from much. Said another way is this, you will view the greatness of God's saving grace through the lens of how you view sin. You will view the greatness of God's saving grace through the lens of how you view sin. If you view sin lightly, you'll regard God's saving grace lightly. So many of the insecurities that, the, that many Christians have today, not only of his own salvation, but even as it pertains to evangelism, comes really from an inadequate conception of the sinfulness of man. And so Paul starts with the condition of man without Christ so that we may know the depths of our sin. Specifically, he's reminding the Ephesians of who they were before Christ after giving them this grand and glorious doctrine. He says, but remember, you were once dead in your trespasses and sins. The apostle's argument here is very simply this. He's basically just saying, Ephesians, if you want to realize the greatness of the power of God, which I've just prayed for you, then you have to realize the travesty and the depths of your own sin from which you were saved. In other words, you've got to know that man has a great problem. It's a problem so beyond hope, so dark, so beyond the limitations of any human's ability to resolve that anything that could resolve this problem has to be worthy of worship. And so we see that this is the very problem that God has overcome our sinfulness, that we were dead in sin. Well, how bad is this sinfulness? Because clearly, based on the world's view, it's not really all that bad. Well, there's no shortage of examples of the sinful nature of man in Scripture. Listen to how the Apostle Paul describes the unrighteous in 1 Corinthians 6. He says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Well, you can't be counseled out of that problem. He says, do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor those habitually drunk, nor verbal abusers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. And so he's telling the Corinthians the same thing. He wants them desperately to understand how depraved they really were so that they understand how great God's love really is. And Titus, Paul says to Titus, remind them to be subject to their rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to slander no one, to not be contentious, but to be gentle, showing every consideration for all people. 
For we too were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy. This is what it means to be dead, hateful, hating one another. Oh, here he is again. There's always good passages like these when you see the word but. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we did in righteousness, but in accordance with his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he richly poured out upon us through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. He says they were foolish before. Many in the, it's ironic that a lot of people in the church envy those in the world, and yet we're told that they're foolish. The truth is that man outside of Christ has no hope of really understanding this world. I mean, we see that, well, especially these last two years, how bizarre people view the world and how very wrong they are. I mean, we're told that your race is solely based on the amount of melanin in your skin. That is utter foolishness. So I guess if you go get a tan, you're all of a sudden less racist. I don't know. It's silly. This says that men without Christ are foolish. I mean, we're told that we need to ban guns because they're shootings, but that's foolishness because guns don't kill people. People kill people. I mean, you see how messed up your worldview is without truth. And maybe if you can't wrap your brain around what I just said, then let me just take you back in history a little bit. Surely we realize that the Roman Empire conquered the entire known world without a single gun, right? They didn't have guns. In Japan, currently, and then over the last couple of years, they've had mass stabbings, mass stabbings, because they don't have guns. A week ago... Tragically, a man drove his SUV into a parade, killing a bunch of children, injuring several others. He didn't have a gun. And so are we going to say we should ban all cars because now cars kill people? Well, this is the world's way of thinking. Do you see that the world without Christ is foolish? This is part of what it means to be dead Not only do you not have any life, not only are we deeply depraved without Christ, but we are without truth and understanding of the world and how it works. You see, the world doesn't understand that sin is the problem. And until sin is dealt with, men will murder with whatever they can get their hands on. A little bit more of the heart of man. Jesus himself speaks about the heart of man in Mark chapter 7, 14 through 23. So after Jesus had called the crowd to him, he said this. He said, listen to me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him, but the things which proceed out of the man are what defile him. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. When he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples questioned him about the parable. So this is a parable he's telling. And he said, Are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes in to the man from outside cannot defile him? Of course, he's speaking of what you can and can't eat. Washing hands, whether you don't wash hands, that sort of thing. He says, because it does not go into the heart, but into the stomach and is eliminated. And he was saying, that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, oh, that's very different. There's no from your environment. From within, out of the heart of men proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, 
deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit and sensuality and envy, slander, pride, and foolishness, all these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. I mean, these are the things in the heart. In other words, these things are the very essence of who they are, who we were without Christ. Fornicators, thieves, murderers, adulterers, covetous, deceitful, sexually perverse, slanderous, proud. These are the things which the Apostle Paul says, such were some of you. And remember, Paul's desire is that we understand how great a salvation we have. And he's saying, but you can't understand that if you don't understand how depraved and lost and dead you were. The word dead in the passage is the word necros. Like we've spoken about, it means exactly what you think. It means lifeless, unresponsive, utterly and totally void of any life or even the potential of life. Think of the cadaver again, sitting lifeless in the morgue. That is the condition, the state of man before Christ. Of course, we're speaking spiritually. And so... Maybe it's a bit silly, but we could understand this as the living dead, sort of a modern-day zombie. You're breathing, you're living, you're walking, but spiritually, you're totally and utterly dead. We were dead in our trespasses and sin, Paul says. And so you see, salvation isn't from you thinking you're not good enough. Salvation is from your deadness. Salvation is from your sin. I mean, there's no clearer, more precise description of the human condition, I think, in the Bible than these first three verses. I don't know how much clearer you can get than the fact that you were dead in sins and trespasses. And so salvation grants life Not just where there was no life, but where there was no hope for life. And it rescues us from sin. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, it isn't that man dies because he sinned. That's not what the passage says. No, we are dead because our very nature is sinful. That's the nature of man dead in our trespasses in sin, contrary to how the world views man. As we mentioned earlier, our trouble is not that we merely have behavioral issues. I'm not saying that we can't address those. Certainly we can and we should. But our trouble is not that. Our trouble is not even that our environment is bad for us, although it could be and we certainly could address that but that's not where our trouble comes from. It's not that we're out of tune with nature somehow or that we just don't know how special we are. The problem is that we're dead in sin and we have no life-giving relationship with God. Every friend you have, every family member that you have that doesn't know Christ, this is their condition. Sin is the very source of all of man's issues. And because of that sinful nature, we're dead. And because we're dead, we're void of truth. We're void of peace. We have no joy. We have no spiritual life. And every other good blessing that God gives us is lacking. And that deadness is the very essence of who we are without Christ. And so in reality, there is no such thing as a, quote, basically good unbeliever. No, they're dead in their sins, just like we were. They lie because they are liars. They murder because they are murderers. They sin because they are sinners. That's the core of who they are. And Paul says, and such were some of you. They're slaves to sin. We were slaves to sin. 
Now, sometimes I think we have this notion that, again, the unsaved aren't really that bad off, and sometimes that we weren't really that, un, that bad off. I mean, I can even recall instances when I first came to Christ that I would actually tell people as a part of my own testimony that, well, I was a pretty good guy already at 18 years of age, 19. But the truth is I wasn't a basically good guy already. I was dead and wicked and evil, and I had no hope of life, of joy, of peace. But then Christ, in his grace and mercy, saved me. And then Christ, in his grace and mercy, saved you from that same reality that you were dead And so there's no such thing as a basically nice unbeliever. We might say, well, she's a pleasant woman. Although she doesn't know God, it's not that bad. But if you could see who they really are, well, it really would look like one of those zombie movies. I'm not sure you want to walk around imagining everyone like that. But in reality, they're walking zombies Ugly inside, and not just ugly, but vile and evil, and yet physically living. And Paul says, such were some of you. Now the word trespass in the passage here means to slip, it means to fall, to stumble, to deviate, or to go in the wrong direction. And so you were dead in your trespasses and sin. In other words, in your deadness, you were walking in the exact opposite direction of the direction of life. You weren't even just misguided in a little bit. You weren't just off by a few degrees. You're walking in the total opposite direction. The word for sin here in the text is homardia, which means literally to miss the mark, like with a bow and arrow. Well, what's the mark? God's mark is perfection. And so you can do a good deed, but if you do a good deed with the wrong motivation, you've missed the mark. For instance, it means to fall short of the goal, the standard, and we understand that God's goal is holy perfection. Romans 3.23, we're told that we all fall short of God's glory, and this falling short is sinful. And so it's interesting we hear phrases sometimes like, well, I think so-and-so is seeking after God. Right? We probably heard that. Maybe we've even said it. Or, I know they love God, they just don't know Him yet. That might be very optimistic, but it's a very wrong view of the nature of man. And we say things like this because we don't know what it means that we're dead in our trespasses and sin. No, no one is seeking for God on his own. He's dead, walking in exactly the opposite direction until the power of God comes in their life. Now, Paul isn't trying to communicate two different types of sin here with trespasses and sins. He's demonstrating, rather, the depth of our sin. He wants to show us how deep in the pit of despair and death we really are. We, I mean, we're walking in the exact opposite direction of anything that gives life. We miss every mark God has, and we're headed towards eternal damnation, basically as the living dead. That's the condition of man before Christ. And so Paul wants us to understand just how far you were from God so that you can have an understanding of how great his power was that saved you. And we realize that everyone doesn't demonstrate the same levels of depravity. Not everyone is a murderer. Although, Jesus said, if you have hate in your heart, you're guilty of murder. But not everyone physically murders. Not everyone physically steals. But everyone without Christ is dead and on the path to hell. Absolutely dead and without any hope. Caught up in their evil and the lust of this world. Being swayed by the powers of this world. Well, our passage goes on to tell us that it's even worse than all of that. 
because we're in this state of death, we could only walk, it says, according to the course of this world. And so again, that person you know that seems to be a great person, he isn't searching for God. It says he's walking according to the course of this world, just like you and I were. According to the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. In other words, in this dead state, the only way of living a person can do is in line with the course of this world, which Paul then makes abundantly clear what that means. The way of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, it's according to Satan, according to the dark powers and the principalities. And all of those without Christ, he says, are sons of disobedience. Jesus says of the Pharisees, who were certainly unbelievers, in John 8, 44, he says, You are of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature because he is a liar and the father of lies. And so Paul tells us that before Christ, we walked according to this world and according to the prince of the power of the air. Their concerns are rooted in this world. Our concerns before Christ were rooted in this world. How successful can we be? How much money can be made, whether or not they're accepted by those around them, keeping up with the Joneses, whether or not they have the latest technology. All of these things are the priorities in life and never the things of God. I would say it doesn't mean that they don't sometimes agree with the good things, but in their hearts, their hearts are with and walking according to this world and the principalities. I mean, this is why one fruit of the Christian is whether or not you love the things of God. Because you cannot love the things of God before Christ. You don't have the capability. Or do you love the things of the world more? Do you love God's people? Do you love the church? Or do you love worldly friends more? Do you love to speak of the things of God and of doctrine and things of the Christian life? Or do you find worldly subjects far more appealing? The dead man can't love the things of God because, well, they're dead. But remember, Paul isn't speaking to unbelievers here, right? He's speaking to the Ephesians, and you say, well, this is awfully depressing, Yes, and it ought to be, (laughs) because in this truth we find the most pessimistic and depressing reality that there ever will be. But in understanding this, we also find the most joyful and sure truth of God's power that there ever will be. Paul speaking to believers, he's speaking to the church at Ephesus, he's speaking to All the Christians who will read this letter, we believe it was a circular letter. And he's reminding us, he's reminding you and he's reminding me of the reality of who we were before Christ. So that we can more fully comprehend the majesty, the beauty, the grandeur of the power of God that saved you. This is what God saved you from. You weren't just lost a little. You were dead and you were a sinner. And there was nothing that you could respond to that would bring you life outside of the power of God. And so we have that beautiful language of the dead being given new life. And so God raised you. This is what Paul, this is why he's telling us this, so that we look at our salvation and we think, oh, how great a salvation. How wonderful is this Lord who saved you from this kind of life. Not only 
that, it ought to change and affect the way we evangelize. We have family who are lost, friends who are lost. This is their reality. They're not just off a little, but they're dead, and they're headed towards an eternal hell, and the only hope they have is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so the Apostle Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it alone is the power into salvation. This is the power that was directed towards you and I, this power of salvation. Well, I'm not going to be able to finish this morning. We'll continue next week, but I want you to remember that Paul's goal here is that we realize the depths of our sin so that we understand the beauty and the power of our salvation. When we understand what it is that God saved us from, we can understand how great his love for us really was. Paul prays that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened so that we might know what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us. And now in chapter 2, he takes us back to the time before Christ, and he says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. He takes us to the depth of our depravity so that we can understand how sinful we were in order to know how great God is. And so that when we think on Christ, when we consider Calvary, when we think of our Redeemer, that our affections are raised, that our hearts are overflowing with joy at such a great salvation because we've come to realize what he saved us from, because we've come to realize the surpassing greatness of the power of God. We can only really realize that when we understand just how bad off we were. We have a great God. You had no hope, none. You were going in the total opposite direction, dead in all these evil, wicked things. And not by anything that you did or because you deserved it, God reached down with his great power and he saved you. And so when we think of our salvation, we should be reminded of where we came from so that we can more fully be thankful for how great God's love is for us. And when we share the gospel around us, to those around us who don't know, this is what we're understanding about them. They're dead in their trespasses and sin. They have no hope. They're wicked. They're evil. This is their very nature. And they will spend eternity in hell. And we have the answer. We have the answer. We have the gospel, which is the only hope for their salvation. And when we understand our sin, we love our God and our salvation all the more. And when we understand their sin, our heart ought to well up and cause us to pray for them and to want to share the gospel so that they too one day can look back and see where they were from the place of God having saved them. That's our hope. Let's pray.